You're listening to a recent Abbey Theatre talk. You can get more information on future talks in the series by visiting www.abbeytheatre.ie. Hello and welcome to the 578th episode of the Abbey Talks series. I am, of course, your host, self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief, Lisa Farley McAnally Brennan IV, Community and Education Coordinator, Abbey Talks Coordinator, Freelance Coordinator. I'm a 50-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a zero-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from the Abbey Bar of the Abbey Theatre, the National Theatre of Ireland home from home to three generations of the magnificent McAnally tribe, the era-defining Ray McAnally and the wonderful Ronnie Masterson, multi-talented Billy Morton, actor, broadcaster, musician, Angus Senior, and the hardest working actor of his generation, the irrepressible fanatic of Irish theater, Angus Ogue McAnally. Now, theatrical dynasties don't loom much larger than the McAnally brood, but not to put too fine a point on it, we do happen to have a worthy challenger to the crown, that being the third generation member of theatrical royalty, Jane Brennan of the clan Brennan. So please welcome the wonderful Angus and Angus Ogue McAnally and Jane Brennan. Um, before we start, uh, I've already got one nil to the McAnally's. I'm fourth generation. Ooh, that is now, here we go. This is, this is the only curveball I'm going to throw at you today, okay. I promise. <laughs> and I wasn't going to ask beforehand because I wanted to get my real-life reaction to finding out what the truth of this story is. Because you're fourth generation, does that make... Hang on, let me get this right. No, you've the four generations. So were you, the gang above... My Your parents, dad. Yeah. Did they ever work here, or am I technically the first ever third generation Abbey actor? Okay, I think you have me there. A ge- no, they true? didn't. They, did, they weren't no, here, no, but they were no, in the business. They were in the business, yes. So that officially I am the no. first ever you, third yes, generation Abbey yes, actor? Yes, yes. Excellent, I'll settle for that. <laughs> okay, I'll settle for that. Okay, one all. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> okay, well, it's uh, a great pleasure to be here this evening to. Um, discuss being a McAnally, really. Uh, the, uh, the extraordinary dynasty that is the McAnally clan, of course, headed by Ray McAnally and Ronnie Masterson, uh, the late, great Ray McAnally. Ronnie, thankfully, very much alive and kicking and with us. Um, I was just going to plunge straight in because we don't have a huge amount of time to discuss this vast topic. So, um, Angus Senior, um, could you just tell us a little bit about Ray and Ronnie, how they started, and and how appropriate it is that we're sitting here in the Abbey talking about them. Well, it is an extraordinary lineage, as you say, Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't be here if they hadn't met in the Abbey, and indeed Angus Og wouldn't be here if I hadn't met my wife, Billy Morton, when I was asked to come in and play a show here back in 1977. But many people might know that my mum, Ronnie Masterson, who's very well, she's not with us uh, today here, physically she's at home, uh, 87 years of age, has just done a piece in Byzantium, the Neil Jordan movie. The Neil Jordan movie, more work than the rest of us put together. So <laughs> it's fantastic, and that's what I love about show business, that you never, ever, ever stop. Um, but she was in here in the company before Dad. So Dad was born in 1926, as indeed was Mam, and he went to St. Eunan's in Letterkenny, and then he came down, did a couple of years to be a priest in Maynooth, and for some reason, either he left or they threw him out. I'm not exactly sure which, <laughs> but I'm delighted that he did, because uh, I wouldn't be here today, or maybe I would, who knows? Anyway, um, <laughs> but he came here in 1947, and Mam was already here. She had been acting here, and he met her, and they hit it off, and... It was extraordinary that he started, and very quickly he loved, and he always talked to us growing up about the ethos of the Abbey, the notion that uh, as an actor you could play the lead one week and then the following week you'd be a spear carrier third from the left yeah. in whatever show was there. Yeah, great training. And even though there was all the, the stories of when the cast list would go up and you'd see Jackie McGowan looking at it, and you'd, you'd start here because obviously you'd, you'd be looking at the big parts and you'd... You'd look down and you'd eventually come down and down and down and you might either see your name and then if you didn't see your name, ah, it won't work. <laughs> so they were there and so we grew up in a family of parents who were acting theatre people 
And so people often said to me, you know, they'd say, what was it like? And, you know, uh, did you not wish your parents had real jobs? And all yeah, I know is the bubble in which I grew up in was the perfect bubble for me because we just knew mum and dad did what they did. We were bonkers in terms of there was nothing like ordinary time to get up or go to bed. Or You, know, you, you set your watch by shows, and it's something that I've done all my life, and I think Angus Hogue as well, that th th whoever was doing the show had, had, had priority. So if dad was rehearsing and then mum was doing something or she was away or if he was so whatever mm. but in other words the time frame we had was based on performance on rehearsal and yeah. or showtime mm -hmm. so uh, they just were theater people through and through yeah. and six nights a week matinees whatever Amazing. i love it i mean it's it's i'm so privileged to yeah. be part of that background yeah. so um i heard on a wonderful podcast that we'll talk <laughs> about your podcast later we'll talk okay. about you later but uh interview that you did with uh ronnie um, your grandmother, um, and she was talking about um, the Abbey Fire. And, yeah. Uh there's a connection with you and Ray and Plough. Yeah, and that. It was it, a lovely story. And I'm, I yeah, I'm, I'm not a big believer in, in kind of destiny or fate, and yet every kind of day of my life I get slapped in the head by it, mm. um, which is why that when I started making shows myself with my own company, which mm. I learned from him having his company, which he learned from his parents <laughs> having their company, in terms of their own theatre companies, mm. we, we kind of have the first two shows of what I'm calling the, the Dynasty and Destiny trilogy, because that's kind of what it keeps coming back to. So, how that ties in here. Um, the night of the Abbey Fire, my granddad Ray McAnally was the last man on the old Abbey stage, playing one of the British soldiers in The Plough and the Stars, ironically enough, singing Keep the Home Fires Burning. <laughs> um, that night, the Abbey burns down. Um, and the following day, uh, they, they came in because they were a newly married couple, both wages coming from here. So if you can imagine like when Dell goes from Limerick, the husband and the wife both getting their paychecks from the one place, and they were panicking as a newly married couple. Um, and uh, Ernest Blythe, who not an awful lot of people have a good word to say about, my granny will defend to the end because Ernest Blythe, as they were literally picking up the smoldering costumes to see what could be salvaged, Ernest Blythe said, nobody here will lose a day's pay over this. And nobody did. So that's quite an achievement at the time, if you think about it. But um, so that, that was kind of Ray's doing plough. And in Ray's first ever gig at the Abbey, when he came down, before he'd ever set foot on stage, uh, they had him standing in the wings in the third act of an earlier production of Plough, uh, shouting on from the wings, ambulance, ambulance, Red Cross, Red Cross. So cut to 2002, I swan out of drama school as the greatest 21-year-old actor of all time in my own head. <laughs> oh, uh, I remember you so well. That's, that's... Uh, and, my, and my first job here is Plough in the Stars, where I'm playing Lieutenant Langan. And when it comes time to do the what had now become technologically pre-recorded sound cues for Act 3 of Ambulance, Ambulance, Red Cross. They drafted me in to go upstairs to record them uh, to play those. So you kind of go, even though you don't believe in that kind of mm, destiny or fate, mm. it keeps coming up and smacking your head. Those mm. connections with this place And I also stop. gave, I'm, I'm a hoarder, unfortunately, so my house is full of rubbish and great stuff and rubbish and great stuff. But <laughs> I actually had and gave to Angus Oak the Abbey programme of 1951 with my dad in the plough when he went in for his first day of rehearsal. And I felt inordinately proud to stand and watch him on that stage and feel the connection with dad and with mom. And, you know, it, 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 it's something that's very hard to actually tangibly explain. Mm. But I suppose, is it doctors have, have doctors and nurses and, and mm. you know, everybody, is it nurture, is it nature? I actually don't know. Is it in the genes, or is it that to which you were exposed? I often wonder, are there classical violinists in Sean McDermott Street that never get a chance mm. because they were never exposed to it? Yeah. I actually don't know, yeah. but I just love... This, I love this. Well, this, I, this I, love a, I love a quote from your wife, your <laughs> good wife, uh, Billy Morton, who says that it, I read somewhere that acting is like malaria, it gets in the bloodstream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it is, it's, a, it's something... Well, it's both, I suppose, environmental and, mm. and um, in the DNA as well. I think yeah. the first time I saw uh, Angus Oak on stage was in his graduation show in the Samuel Beckett Centre in Trinity, and I nearly fell off my chair when he walked onto the stage because the, the family, the whole McAnally thing was so incredibly, uh, overpoweringly uh, obvious. Well, in the second act of mm. The House, which was oh, yeah. last year, mm. okay. um, and I know that one of the costumes that you originally tried on had Dad's name on it, but you were sitting in the bar in a suit and your hair job, and at one stage you just turned around, and I, I got an awful shock. I thought I was looking at my dad. And that's mm. weird. And something, we were talking yeah. about this just before we started uh, the talk. I do find it strange... Um, I'm now five years younger than my dad when he died. And so all the times when I see him on telly or in pictures or whatever, he's younger than me in lots of it. And it, it, it's, 
it, you know, you might be away on holidays and you put your suitcase down in the hotel, you switch on the television, and suddenly you hear his voice and you look around and he's 32 yeah, or 40 yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But, it's a, it, but it's lovely to have those tangible memories as well. Yeah, yeah it's a strange thing because I, I do get that a lot. I mean, in general terms, you're, you're the image of your granddad, but I, I get Thanks. it <laughs> I didn't say it, um, but much more so. Like when I'm on stage, people say, you know, yeah. like particularly on stage, I really like it. Now, listen, if the worst thing that ever happens to you in life is that you're very like a three-time Best Actor BAFTA winner on stage, that's probably not the worst place yes. to be in life. You know, yes. so I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. But uh, talking about being a three-time BAFTA winner, internet having an internationally renowned actor as your grandfather, do you ever find that as a, is it a, is the whole tradition thing a burden or is it a, a, a boost? You know, do you, do you, do you mind being one of them? You know, no, because I, I mean, I chose when I was, I started working professionally at 15. Mm. Um, and I, at that stage, I had to choose because I couldn't be, as a stage name, I couldn't be Angus McAnally because Equity already had an Angus McAnally. Mm. We had to choose what I was going to be. And because my middle name is Raymond after himself, there was about 15 seconds where we went, well, maybe I could be Ray McAnally. And then everyone <laughs> in the room went, no. absolutely not. Um, and, and so I, and at that stage, I made the choice not to go and be John mm. Murphy or mm. whatever else. Um, but I became, uh, I became Angus Ogue McAnally. Mm. And, and that's pretty much nailing your colours to the mast. Yeah, so yeah. I, like, I'm very proud of the lineage. Occasionally, very, like, in, in the early days, when I was just coming out of, of drama school and whatever else, mm. you did have people you know, in interviews kind of going, oh, and yeah, that'd be great now, opening doors because the family name. And you find now you get parts because of and You go, well, yeah, no. Yeah. No director's going to be stupid enough to cast you on your surname. Mm. What it might do is it might open the door to an audition for you, mm -hmm. or it might give you that extra five seconds of retention in the casting director's brain to go, oh, sure, he was, yeah, okay. And then you go in and you get it on talent, yeah. hopefully. Mm. Um, so I don't feel it as a massive burden. The big thing it did for me was... I never had an inferiority complex. Mm. Not that I think that I'm the greatest actor of all mm. time, but it was never that thing of, ah, sure, we're only a small little island. We could never go and do anything. Mm. Here was a guy who went and was a massive international mm. success. Mm. Like, if you think the last BAFTA he won, this is my favourite story about him, the last <laughs> BAFTA he won, obviously, a category of four uh, actors nominated. Mm. The other three that he beat, in inverted commas, were <laughs> Jack Nicholson as the Joker in Batman, Sean Connery... <laughs> And Marlon Brando. <laughs> and at that point, she's going, okay. So what it meant to me was, it, it meant to me that I went, well, anything is possible. Dream big. Yeah, um, and then if you don't get there, that's fine. Like, if yeah. I don't come home with four BAFTAs, that's grand. Mm. But at least you know that it's possible. Uh, mm. And I think that's a really useful thing to have in your arse yeah. pocket. And yeah. one of the other critically important things, I think, with regard to Dad's perception of who he was and what he was, was that he was an Irish-based, internationally acclaimed actor. Yeah. His base was Dublin or when he, he was living in, in, in Clare for and a while. That's possible. And he, he, he loved getting them to send a car to Clare to collect him, to yeah. bring him to Dublin. Mind you, he was in Egypt sometimes. You know, that he couldn't get used to the trappings of the success he had. I do remember when he was being flown with two tickets first class to LA for a movie that he was doing. And what did he do? <laughs> the Donegal part of him. He traded them in and got four ordinary ones and brought two of his friends with him as well. <laughs> I said, I'll just sit up the front and enjoy it. But he loved, he was really proud to be an Irish-based, internationally regarded actor, and that was important to him. Yeah. Um, can we just talk about a little bit about you and your career, uh, Angus? And uh, obviously, you met Billy here in the Abbey as well. You, uh, was, was working in the Abbey your first job? It's a lovely connection, you know, that well, Ray and Ronnie met here and you and Billy. Billy well, when, I, when I was five or six, my folks... Um, said that they noticed I was musical and my dad being the thinker of in professional terms of how would you get work he said get him on the violin get him to learn the violin because if he's going to work in music in an orchestra there'd be loads of string sections <laughs> whereas there'd be only one piano player don't play the piano because there's only one job in an orchestra so to have to maximize your chance of work learn music so I started Brilliant. doing the violin which I absolutely detested <laughs> I hated it and I gave it up when I was about nine and about four years later I picked up a guitar and I just fell in love with it so when I was about 14 or 15 I said dad I'm going to be a professional musician he said look I don't care what you do as long as you promise me one thing that whatever you do you will do it to the very best of your ability no matter what it is he said that's all I ask of you do it to the very best standard highest standard be a pro in every aspect of what you do so I started in music and I was playing a musical show um, playing the guitar for a show and and nobody turned up. It was a musical that was very badly attended. And one day we sent everybody home and the actors got into the musical pit and the pit actors got up and started acting. And Carolyn Swift saw me and said, I'm writing uh, Wanderly Wagon at the moment. Would you like to play Fergus the Magic Postman? <laughs> so I played two years of Fergus the Magic Postman in that, which was my only kind of acting role. Uh -huh. And Tomás McCanna saw me in that. 
and I was asked to do anything goes in 1980 as a result of, of all of that. But Tomás McConaughey um, had said to me, would you play Ushin in the pantomime in 1977 with, uh, with the cast here? I said, I'd be delighted to. I hadn't a clue. And Reggie Lloyd, who's a bass player who had been in drama at Inish with Billy Morton, my lovely lady wife, said to me, because we were working together a gig, he said, listen, you're going into the Abbey. I've just been in there. There's a board in there that suits you, Grand. Her name is Billy Martin. She lives over the north side like you, and she has her own jam jar, her own car. <laughs> Keep an eye out for her. And I came into rehearsals, and my wife, Billy Martin, heard that the son of somebody was coming in. She thought it was one of the Grinnells, I think. I know, right? <laughs> but anyway, I sidled up and said, how are you, Billy? How are you? And that was November of 1977. I played Oshin and to Barbara Brennan's beautiful Neve Kinor. And uh, we got engaged the following May, and we got married a year later in the June. And another year and a half later, this wonderful son, Angus Og, arrived. So if Tomás hadn't asked me to come in, I wouldn't have met Billy, and we wouldn't have the third generation. So directly as a result, it was extraordinary for us two to meet yeah. in the stage here, yeah. and we played the Peacock. Yes. And, I mean, Billy's such a fantastic actress, and, I mean, she yes. created the role of Susie Bernstein in the Bernard Farrell. That's I do right. not like the Dr. Fell. I remember uh, it as well. Uh, yeah. Which yeah. became one of the big, yeah. big successes. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so it's fantastic. Yeah. And then um, Angus Oak, we thought he might meet his wife in here, but he didn't. He met a school teacher out in Port Marnock, but anyway. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but in terms of following that, that lineage through, you talk about Tomás. Now, Tomás's granddaughter is Lara Hickey, who's a producer in here in the Abbey now as yeah. well, uh, who I've had the pleasure of working with quite a bit as we've been coming up as kind of, you know, young Turks coming along. So you see that those connections coming down through the generations mm. as well mm. is, uh, is beautiful. But the other thing is that I love as well, because, I mean, I'm very proud of what you do, but I love music, as you know, and we have two sons, Andrew, uh, who's five years younger than Angus Og, who last Saturday night, for the second time ever, played on stage with me. I, I have a Christy Hennessy one-man show that I've been doing, which was just fantastic to do, and he joined me and we played together, and I cannot tell you the joy to have my son performing music with me on stage playing beautifully, like people knocked out at his guitar playing for somebody who quietly says, oh, no, I don't really want to perform. Where does the musicianship come from? Is, it, is, that, is that something that Ray had or Ronnie? Or well, funny enough, yeah. do you know what? I, I think that it's, there's a musical ear in the actor, yeah. and I think that's part of the gene that I got because yeah. I'm very good, he said objectively, on doing accents and my comedy stuff that I do, I do a lot of the... The yes, various different yeah. accents, and I, th I, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to read it, to write it very accurately in terms of you know the Irish language or whatever. Yeah. It, but I hear the sounds of it. I think it's a musical ear. If I hear a tune, I can play it back immediately. Yeah. If if I know how to play Dory, if I saw Latido on any instrument, yeah. I can play the instrument. And it's it's that gene. I think that's part of the actor's ear <laughs> for accent for voice. But Andrew has it in spades as well. You it's also sorry. No, go on. You also uh, were telling me a lovely story about. Um, the way Ray sort of uh, helped you in interpret lyrics. I, I said to him one day, um, because he, he was watching me, I was, I was rehearsing, and I said, Dad, will you, will, will you teach me how to, how to sing a song? I don't just want to sing songs, I want to really sing the song. And he said, sure, sure. He said, give me a book. So I picked one of the many, many lyric books. It was the music of Gilbert O'Sullivan. And he, he just flicked it open, and it opened on Alone Again, Naturally. And he just started reading it, and I ended up in tears. He was, you know, and he just went to the third verse. Uh, I, I don't know if you know the song, Alone Again. I said, uh, and the, who couldn't understand, the woman, her husband died, how the only man she had ever loved had been taken, leaving her to cope with a heart so badly broken. And I, I started crying. He said, just read them, find out what they mean, and just say them from your heart. And it's something I've used in, and mm. thankfully, and thank you, Dad and Mam and Billy, and, but people have said to me in my concerts that I, I bring the lyric to life. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's that. I, I've heard, I remember having a row with an opera singer once who was singing Love Changes Everything, right? Mm. And, we, and, she was, and I did it the following night. We were on a tour, right? But her, she did it. Love, love, change everything. <laughs> and I said, your voice is beautifully performing. I haven't a clue what you're singing about. And I would much sooner compromise yeah. on the sound, maybe, and hear that love changes everything, yeah. you know, yeah. and get the, anyway. But so he did. He helped me greatly in that. Yeah. But he had a brilliant way. Mind you, he was so pernickety. He'd say to you, love changes everything. Love changes everything. Love changes everything. And I had to make up your mind. <laughs> you know, the possibilities there. Yeah. And it's something that I think is the difference between Angus Hogan and myself. I, when I was rehearsing the Christie Hennessy show, um, I didn't really enjoy the rehearsal process because of the possibilities. I wanted to say, what are we going to do? And we'll do it. Yeah. Whereas I think most actors love, we'll try it this way, but organically, could it be that way? Mm. Yeah. 
uh, Angus Oak, um, obviously Ray was a great teacher and uh, knew the importance of skills and handing on skills. What was how, what was the importance of you training in the Samuel Beckett? Well, that was—I mean—the choice for me at the time was because I had, like I had started working at fifteen and, and things were going relatively well. Um, but if I was going to be a chippy, I would have gone and done my apprenticeship. Mm. Um, and it's the thing—I just—I would never be arrogant enough to presume, oh, I can just go and do that. Mm. Um, it was always a question of, well, let's go and, and, and hone the craft and refine it. Um, it. That's not to say that everybody has to go through a formal conservatory-style drama school training, um, but it was it was a choice for me. And I talked earlier about that thing of not having the inferiority complex. I didn't feel that I had to go to RADA or Lambda or mm. London to train, mm. which would have been the case not that long before I started training. Um, but at the time, uh, drama schools in Ireland had come on to the point where, you know, they were turning out incredible actors. Mm -hmm. And you look, you know, signs on it, the kind of people I trained with yeah. of, you know, Aaron Monaghan, who's winning awards on Broadway, and Ruth Negga, who's, you know, making movies with Brad Pitt and whatever else. Mm -hmm. like, we were a solid gang coming through. But, I mean, the big thing for me was that it afforded us the luxury to make our mistakes in private, which was massively valuable because, um, because you know, otherwise you're in here and you have critics mm -hmm. coming in and reviewing and directors or casting agents, whatever, coming in, and, and to have that kind of bubble uh, where you're semi-wrapped in cotton wool mm. um, to, to make those mistakes was, was, was a really useful time. Mm. In the interest of clarity as a parent, may I point out that when he says he was professional, his first professional job was at 15, yes it was, you went to London, you did the Ku Cullen cycle and yeah. all that. You did finish your, you didn't leave school at 15 and go, I mean, you studied and you did your leaving. Yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. But just to, in case anybody thought, oh, that you started at 15 <laughs> and we, you, we let you leave school. No. Thank you. <laughs> um, there's a great uh, spirit of enterprise in the <laughs> It's quite irrepressible. Every generation has formed their own theatre company uh, with Ray and Ronnie had Old Key Productions. Indeed, yep. You had Ashley Productions. Ashley Productions and now Ingus Oak has Rise uh, Productions. Rise Productions. Um, can you tell us a little, about Rise, a little bit about Rise Productions and why you felt the need to start your own company and... Yeah, um, uh, well, sure. I mean, okay, well, I can give you the, the answer I should give when I'm in the Abbey Theatre, which is about, I was just very compelled to create my own work and really had a voice, the things I wanted to say. Um, <laughs> the answer I would tell you if we were in the pub is that, you know, sometimes the phone doesn't ring and yeah. uh, you can sit on your ass or you can get up there and make it happen. Um, and the truth is kind of between the two. Yeah. Um, like you say, I had seen this kind of model of where you can be a freelance jobbing actor from all the generations coming along, mm -hmm. but that you could also form your own company to create your own work, provided you named it after the address on which you lived. So Old Key after Old Key House out in Sutton, <laughs> Ashley Rise, Ashley Productions after Ashley we Rise. We lived on Ashley Rise and we couldn't think of a name, so we <laughs> called it Ashley Productions. And because they took the Ashley of Ashley Rise, I took Rise <laughs> Productions. Um, <laughs> well, I so, thought it was something to do with the Phoenix Rise. Yeah, it's, 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 it's that too. Your totally career. That, it's totally that too. No, but, but the thing is, I mean, there is only so long you can spend bitching in uh, the bar after rehearsals on a Friday going, mm. did you see this show's after getting a great mm. review or they're doing massive business up in project or whatever and, and I don't think it's any use. There comes a point where you've got to go, okay, well, if you don't think that's good, well, stand up and show us what you think is good and make yeah. the theatre you believe in. Yeah. And Dad had a great phrase which was, it's better to be a has-been than a never-was-er. Oh, and by that he meant, get out and do it. Try it. You know what? There's no shame in failure. You have to try it. Yeah. And actually, w one of the biggest failures he ever had led to one of the biggest successes oh, yeah. he ever had. He believed in a show called Kennedy's Children, which he bought, oh, brought over to Ireland and booked a theatre for 16 weeks and it died an unmerciful death oh, no. from the first three nights and the house was in danger of going. And they closed it on a Friday night and my mum and my dad and John B. Keane and Barry Casson and Phyllis Ryan over Saturday and Sunday wrote, put together, adapted, directed and opened on the Monday night uh, the letters of a matchmaker with, with my mum oh, and my yeah. dad touring it, which has now been covered then by Frank Kelly yeah. and Charleston, the lady from yeah. And yeah. But that went on and did 104% business in the Ablana <laughs> because they put in an extra row of chairs wow. at the back <laughs> and we saved the house and made a fortune out of it. Um, so. I love the notion of, and that's why I respect Angus Oak so much, he, he does these podcasts. And by the way, if you haven't heard the, the Rise Productions yeah. podcast, have a listen back to them and remember Lisa's brilliant introduction because he does this wonderful <laughs> intro and that was a parody of it, which was fantastic. But I love the, the notion of get out there and do it. And Dad had another great phrase, which was, a consistently high standard of work done over a long period of time cannot go unnoticed. And that's a mantra by which I've tried yeah. to live my career. It's and true. Hopefully it's, with Angus it's, a, it's about the hustle. Um, you've got to get out there and make it work. There's a, there's a baseball player in America has this quote going, like, there may be people more talented than you, 
but there's no excuse for anyone to work harder than you do. Mm. And that's why, like, I mean, the stuff I do crazy stuff sometimes. Like, I, luckily, I've been in here in the Abbey for the last two big summer shows that Annabelle Cummins has directed. Um, and last year, I was doing the show here by night and filming a TV series in Galway by day. So cr crossing the country back and forth every single day and working 22-hour days, which is insane, and it'll kill you very quickly. Um, so I didn't learn anything from that. And this year around, when I was doing Major Barber, which Annabelle directed again for the big summer show here, I was also producing Rise's latest show for the Fringe Festival and appearing in it as well. So kind of triple jobbing on that. And again, working 20-hour days. But you got to get out there and do it. No yeah. one else is going to make yeah. it happen for you. And if you want to be there making these shows that you believe in, um, then that's kind of the work you got to put in, I think. I remember yeah. Dad getting a movie part once when he was playing at nighttime here and a, a casting director wanted to see him in London. He said, I, I can't get over. And the guy said, this is a big part in a movie. I need to see you. He said, what time do you need to see me at? He said, I need to see you at no later than one o'clock in London. And Dad said, well, I can't. He said, I need to... Okay, I tell you what, he said, will you do me a favour? Will you meet me at Terminal 1 in Heathrow at a quarter past one? And the director said, I will. So my dad hopped on a plane, flew to Heathrow, walked straight out, met the guy over a cup of coffee, got the part, walked straight back in, and got the next flight back and was on stage here. He did get clearance from management. <laughs> uh, but I, can, I, can, can I tell one story against my dad? Yeah. And he... This is, he'd never do this normally, but my dad taught me the love of snooker and billiards that <sighs> I've kept I was going, right? Ask you about that. When he was doing. <laughs> are you going to ask me that? I was, I was. Oh, well, then I leave it. Telepathy, leave it. no. Uh, but it, he was playing in Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, which he opens and closes. Written by a certain Frank McGuinness, who shows no currently stranger playing indeed here tonight. to this theatre. And he broke all his own rules because he was a stickler for being meticulous. And be, but in this instance, he used to leave here after the opening and go across to the Piero Snooker Club in Bachelor's Walk, set his alarm for two hours, play four or five frames of snooker. He actually won a competition over there and came back then and finished off the show. But uh, it was in his, the latter of his years, sort of his autumn of his years, we thought, ah, flip it, I'm going to have enjoy myself. That, that story has grown legs, and I don't know if this part of it is true, but allegedly the night he won the competition, came back with the massive shield he had won and brought it on stage for the curtain call. But I don't know if that I definitely happened. Too. I don't know if that definitely happened. Well... Who knows? But right, we'll have to find out from the, the other cast members. Um, that would have been wonderful. Um, he was also a great director, though. Um, I saw a couple of his productions here, um, The Glass Menagerie, which is a beautiful, beautiful production, mm. and um, Of Mice and Men with Liam Neeson and The Peacock, and among others, I'm sure, many. But there are two that I particularly remember. But you said, Angus, that he was a real stickler when he was directing. That yeah, uh, my memories of Dad directing as a child would be with a little den uh, mm -hmm. in the house. In, and this is way back to the, <clears throat> when it would be, mid-60s um, in Artane. And a little, little den down the back. And he'd have a little overhanging light. And he got a cardboard box that he'd cut out. And he would get the model of the set. And he would get poker chips. And he would put the characters' names on the poker chips. And he would have the script. And he would go in there every night. Because I remember waking up in the middle of the night, going for a pee, and hearing sort of music or something, the soundtrack to the play. And I'd come down. And he'd be sitting there. And he'd be going through the script. And before day one of rehearsal, he would come in with the entire show blocked and directed, uh, with every note written down. Some actors loved that. That would drive me down. <laughs> Some actors absolutely hated that because they want to be organic and say, no, but maybe I'm feeling, you know. I but, would but smack a director if you tried to do <laughs> What would it have been like for you to would be Would you stop? Okay, yeah. <laughs> have you directed it? Have I? Yeah. yeah, I've started the last nice. couple of years. And would you allow the actors to go, oh, I don't know, I think I'm happy, oh, no, I think I'm sad. I'd, I'd let them say that for about five minutes ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, we'll do it my way. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I have, and again, it's that thing of, 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 of learning that that's possible, because it's, it's weird, and particularly at the moment in Irish theatre, with the way the funding situation is at the moment, um, people love to have you pigeonholed. It's, it's nice to go, okay, you're that guy and you do that. Yeah. So for me now, starting to make my own stuff with Rise and starting to direct bits and pieces here and there as well, it kind of muddies the water a bit, and people go, well, no, what are you? Are you, are you an actor? Are you a leading man? Are you, are you a director? Or what are you? But, um, but I love directing. The more I do of it, a bit like Ray, the more I do of it, the more I love it. Mm. I don't like producing at all. I, would, yeah. I hate that with a passion, but it's just got to be done. Um, but the directing thing I really enjoy. And the hope then is that you can kind of... That you can marry the way that Ray did, that you get to do both, that you keep up your career as a freelance actor, going out about doing the things, telling the stories you want to tell, uh, and then having the moments to come back and do that directing stuff. I would, I would love if I can keep that going. He, Dad was also not a method actor, and I, I did a documentary about two years ago now on his life, 
um, fascinating piece of work for, for TG Cahar. And I got to meet people like De Niro and Liam Neeson and the various people with whom he would have worked over the years and Jeremy Irons. But he did, his philosophy was, as an actor, what am I feeling? Let's just go and act, strangely enough. And he did find it amusing to be working with people who needed to be the method actor. And if you're familiar with the mission, uh, the scene where Robert De Niro, to atone for having killed his brother, has to climb up the front face of the cliff, carrying this big bag of trash on his back. And he gets to the top, and he cries, and he cries, and he cries. I do recall getting a phone call from my dad uh, from Columbia. And he said, oh, God. I said, yeah, all right, Dad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bobby's driving me mad. I said, what's wrong? He said, the fecker has been crying since half six this morning, and we're not doing the flipping shot until half three this afternoon. <laughs> but that was, that was how it was. But what was hilarious was that they, they had this code that they used to talk because eventually um, he'd say to De Niro, what, what are you doing there? And De Niro said, well, I'm really moved, and I'm this. Oh, my dad said, well, that'd be, what, a 17, which would be angry, and a 19, which is very upset, and a 22. And they, they laughed, and it became a code that both um, Neeson and De Niro and Irons, they'd all have this gag where saying, I think we need 42, 27, and a 39 for this one, please. But he, it's just, I think it's extraordinary, the difference in how actors can be in, you know, um, Daniel Day-Lewis, a wonderful actor, but he, he did stay awake for four days and had somebody beat him up so that, as the, in the, the IRA film, that he would look like somebody who'd been beaten up. Now, in the film, I think he looked like somebody who'd stayed awake and be beaten up for four days, but I don't know how different it would have been if he had acted <laughs> being beaten up yeah. and staying awake for four days, yeah. but it takes all sorts. He's yeah. a brilliant actor. Yeah, it's whatever way gets yeah. you there. Yeah. Um, have you seen your dad's Christy Hennessy show? I have, yeah. yeah. What's it like watching your dad on stage? Really weird, because we have this strange thing where <laughs> over the last couple of years, you've moved more towards the kind of thing that I do, and I've moved more towards the kind of thing that you do, which is very strange. I'm, I'm still deeply and profoundly uncomfortable uh, as me in front of a microphone in a situation like this. I don't enjoy it. The podcast thing with all these interviews and, and kind of radio present and other things like that doesn't come in any way naturally to me. Whereas with you, that's the red light goes on and you absolutely fire up. Um, and, and it kind of works both ways. So it was strange for me going to see him on stage, given this incredible performance. Um, and... Uh, uh, like amazing responses from audiences up and down the length and breadth of the country. Uh, and so it is kind of strange because it had been a while since you'd last been on stage as a straight up, in inverted commas, actor. You a know? full two hour one man play. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, uh, and as a dude who has done a one man show myself, I know what kind of an ask yeah. that is. Yeah. Um, so it's amazing to see him come back to it. And uh, easy, Tiger. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And, and kind of a real sense of pride, actually, yeah, uh, yeah. in watching it because you're going to go. Uh, yeah, and that's exactly the same for me. Um, yeah. I'll never forget seeing Angus Og do an extraordinary one-man show called Fight Night, which some of you may have seen. The physicality of a man who had trained to be a boxer coming back into the ring at 27 or 28, it was quite... And, and to watch Kenneth Egan looking at him saying, yeah. you could spar with me right now, uh, yeah. it, uh, extraordinary. And as a, as a parent watching your son, as a, a theatre person watching another theatre practitioner, in the early years of your career, we would have been there, myself and Billy, looking, saying, that was lovely. I wonder, should he, could he have moved this way or should he have, you know? And to watch you in fight night, the two of us drove home in the car saying, do you know what? That's it. There is no more. He's his own man now. And the extraordinary sense of pride in seeing you achieve that level of, of professionalism and talent and hard work. And you know what? They're the ingredients, I think, that dad and mom taught us, yeah. you know, you have to work at it. You have a gift, but it's a, it's a precious gift to have, but it, you must not abuse it. And so I, I just, watching you do that, watching you do the games people play, you're the last one you did. But then I love as well, because in, in Fight Night, you're a, a hard Dublin fella, to see you play Shakespeare beautifully, <laughs> to see you play uh, in Major Barber. Yeah. Um, so I, it, it's just wonderful as a parent to actually let... The, and it's hard to let the reins go of your child in a sense, but you're not a child when you're... But the good thing for us, and this is strange, and I don't know that you would have shared this up the generation or amongst your own family, but we are not competitive in any way. Mm -hmm. And that I would always go to him, with any of the kind of the podcast stuff, the stuff that's more in his realm, mm. I'll always go to him and ask for notes. Yeah. And equally, my mom... I, can I say, I will say it here, it doesn't matter. My mom, after coming to see Major Barber, which we just finished a couple of weeks ago here, um, my mom came up to me after and said, that was great, brilliant, whatever. I said, okay, go on, mom. She goes, right, I've just two notes for you. <laughs> and, and, and I'll always take brilliant. those notes. Because yeah. it's that thing, like, you would be stupid not to take notes from incredibly experienced yeah. professionals. Yeah. And equally, uh, around the time of doing the When Jolly Met Christie, that you would come to me and say, right, go on. And I might have had, like, one or 
or two, because you'd never step on another director's toes or whatever, but you go, uh, like, and, and you can handle yourself. You're big enough and ugly enough that you can handle yourself now. But because I'm doing this day in and day out, whereas it had been mm. a while since you'd come back to it, like, simple things are kind of, if you just delay that by one beat or do that there, and that'll go and work, that we, we have that relationship where we can give each other notes, and it's not about I'm better than you or I know yeah, more than you yeah. or I'm trying to put you down. Yeah. It's about we all want each other to be the best that we can be. But you know? what I love as well is, and I suffer from it, and I, maybe you do as well, Ingsoll, is the notion, the insecurity that every actor has, no matter how good they are. If I do a comedy show and if, if they don't laugh as much as I thought they would, I go home in the car going, I can't do this, I'm no good or whatever. Right? <laughs> I was lucky enough to speak to my dad on the day that he died, on the, the 15th of June, 1989. It was a general election day and somebody had told me that he was home and I knew he wasn't home because he was in England shooting first and last, a, a, a guy walking from John O'Groats to Lanzett. Anyway, it turned out he was home and I rang him and I got talking to him. And he, this was the 15th of June in 89, and he said to me, you know something, he said, I've turned down 20 film scripts this year already. I wonder how long I can keep turning them down before they stop asking. Mm. And that was a BAFTA award winning, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. in the same way, I think each and every one of us quite rightly should question how we do what we do. Was that okay? And I, I would mm. go to Angus Og and he would, I'd say, will you have a look at this? What do you think? This is the speech and how does that work? And is that okay? Because the skill set that I don't mm. have that he has and, and, and vice versa. Mm. You're talking about the sort of massive work ethic that you all have and obviously inherited from Ray and Ronnie, but um, the, the phrase I remember from Ronnie in the documentary was Ray saying, it's better to burn out than rust out. Yeah. And, but obviously, the way you're talking about him there, the, the, the business really did take its toll on him. And it did. He had mm. had a, a heart mm. bypass 10 years before he mm. died, and that was very successful. And in the last 18 months of his life, I don't think that he was minding himself. He, he mm. hadn't great patience for lots of things. And I know um, one of the things that annoyed me that I only found out during the course of making the documentary was that he had been with his cardiologist the day before he died, sitting, waiting for him, and he was, his appointment was two o'clock and at 25 past two he still hadn't been seen and he said I'll flip this and he left and just that in retrospect that just mm. hurt me a little bit I thought ah oh, dad you mm. should have stayed um, but and Robert De Niro talked to me about because Robert De Niro had produced um, uh, We're No Angels which was the remake of the Spencer Tracy mm. movie mm. where dad was the uh, the warden in the prison chasing De Niro and Sean Penn when mm. they escape and they had a huge big high set that dad had to come up and down. And De Niro did say to me, he said, we, we were concerned um, if we wanted to do a number of retakes, your dad wasn't looking great. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but he said he, he, said he, he was... Uh, he was a great guy to work with. And actually Putnam paid, Lord Putnam said to me, and he said it to me 10 years ago, and he also said to me when we made the documentary, so I realised it wasn't just a line. He actually said that he learned more about the craft of film acting from my dad than any other actor he had ever worked with. And oh, I yeah. found that extraordinary. Like, whatever about saying it just to be nice to you. Yeah. But with the gap of 10 years, mm. and, and also said it to another person when I wasn't even there, you know. But it did take its toll on him. Um, but he would actually, he would love the idea of just working hard, you know, That's and, and yeah. hey-ho, you put on a bit of weight and you don't mind yourself, but wasn't the, you know, it was great to do it, yeah. you know. And it was extraordinary, like, the whole sort of, the amazing career he had towards the end of his life and doing things like um, a very British coup as well as the mission and things like that. The very British coup, I think, is one of the best performances. Well, the three, if, if you ask me, uh, his three best, y your favorites, I think, on stage, his Willie Loman in Death mm. of a Salesman was yeah, extraordinary. extraordinary. And in second place, the bull McCabe. Yeah. I think his creation of the bull was just terrifying. I remember, and Maura Connolly, good to see you, um, <laughs> remembers that vividly. Uh, I remember, he, and he didn't take his work home with him, but he was wound up playing mm. the bull. I remember sitting, having dinner at home, and uh, I dropped a fork, and he leapt up, I don't know, and, I, and it was terrifying, mm. but he was just so engrossed. That was a terrifying, but brilliant, brilliant performance. Yeah. So his death of a salesman, I think a very British coup was his finest bit of television acting, yeah. and then, Maybe the mission, you know, as yeah. to how it was played. Um, Maybe the mission. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, if, you, if you ask me, that's what I would say. It's, you know. Well, they're all brilliant, so it's hard to choose. But what about you, Angus? It's oh, a funny thing. I've gone, because I never saw him on stage. Yeah. Um, but now that I'm a, a grown-up and I do this mm. for a living, I've gone yeah. back and rewatched almost all 
of the kind of videos and DVDs mm -hmm. of, of the stuff that went on before. It's just terrifying to see how good he is. Yeah. Um, and all the stuff that you can't teach, the idea of screen presence, that, that opening shot of him in, um, in My Left Foot, which is this ridiculous wide shot of him walking down like the maternity corridor in the hospital. So you can't see him, he's like a speck in the distance. And instantly, as soon as it cuts that shot, boom! Massive mm -hmm. presence on screen. You go, mm -hmm. how? How from 50 yards can you mm -hmm. do that? Stuff that I can't do in close-up. How are you doing that from 50 yards? Another one of his great phrases, if I may, which was, he said, I don't care if an audience loves me or hates me, but by God, they'll know I'm on that stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the, I've tried in my own career, and people have said to me, God, it was amazing when you came out, you owned the stage. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom. Because he, that, he drummed that into us. I, I, I was at, I was working helping Louis Walsh audition his band, his boy band, recently picking some of the new guys, and it was extraordinary to see people coming on who want to be in a boy band that could end up being bigger than One Direction coming on, and going, <laughs> nothing, no, you know. So he used to say that I don't care whether they love me or hate me, they'll know I'm on the stage, and he had that. That indefinable thing, that presence. You know? Yeah, but you, you talk about very British coup. I went back and rewatched that again recently. I think it's really stood the test of time. And funnily enough, in the dressing room in Major Barbara, Killian Burke, a young actor who's now based over in London from here, uh, watched it during the, the time mm. that we were doing the show. Just came into me one day in the rehearsal and said, Ingo, I've just finished watching a very British coup. I went, I know. And he went, it's awesome. I went, I know. He went, like, I've never seen anything like it. I know. <laughs> like, and, and so the, yeah. the idea that, you know, in terms of, because acting styles can date over a while. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what, 25 years ago now, probably. Um, the idea that it stands the test of time and that, you know, the mm. next generation, even below me, of younger actors coming up, yeah. um, that they're still kind of seeing it. Go, that's amazing. That's kind of yeah. awesome as far as I'm concerned. It is, and it's amazing. Um, uh, uh, the, the connection with Ray when he passed away in the Abbey, the the, the wonderful. Well, you tell us. What, what well, the the funeral service, mm -hmm. which was only up the road, was quite extraordinary, and uh, I organised to play at the funeral. Uh, David Agnew and Frank McNamara and the RT Concert Orchestra, the Timps and the String Section to play Gabriel Zobo, which is just the most beautiful piece of music. And I will never forget. I, I both cried and smiled. Um, if you're familiar with the piece of music, it starts with that low drone and the timps start. And then the la -da 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 -da. just as the melody started, a shaft of light came through the stained glass windows and spotted the coffin. And everyone went, ah, Ray, come on. <laughs> it was just, I was in tears. But we left. And one quick funny story, if I may. My cousin Declan had uh, cerebral palsy, is in a wheelchair, black beard, and he, he was up there on the step. And a woman came up to him, right? And bear in mind, my left foot was only out kind of six months or whatever. Came up, shook his hand, and said, Daniel, you were very good in that film. <laughs> Which is my cousin, it's just bonkers. But we left and we came down here, and the entire staff of the Abbey Theatre was standing out on the pavement there. Yeah. And I'll never forget. Uh, we stopped, and they all applauded. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that was amazing. Sorry. Yeah, that's all it's, right. Um, no, it's a, it's a lovely memory to have. It, it's, a, it's a surreal day, because I, mean, mm. I have recollections of that day as well, and, uh, and obviously different from, from your end of it, uh, but, but just the most bizarre thing to have... Uh, you know, TV cameras in your face at your granddad's funeral when you're an eight-year-old kid, yeah, yeah. Um, and it being like proper front-page news and stuff. It's it's mm. it's a very strange experience to go through. But then you were talking about kind of you know you only know the reality of the family in which you yeah. grow up, and that that's you know that was the reality. Mind for you, us. I, I do remember coming around the corner in in the funeral car, and either I said or Billy said, I just I have a memory of hearing the phrase, "Okay, showtime," as we got out of the car and and the cameras came up, and it was lovely. And I remember Derek Davis, funnily enough, um, all my friends and colleagues were there, and Derek came up and he shook my hand and gave me a big hug, and he said, just remember one thing, big lad, he said, uh, lots of people here for your dad, he said, a lot of people here for you guys as well. And yeah. I thought that was lovely. That's that, lovely. You know, yeah. But it was, it, it, he, it's such a loss. The only good thing is I feel my dad around me all the time, and mm. I often would be driving home and say, what do you think I should do here, man? You know, help yeah. us out on this one or whatever, you know? Well, I, I remember um, him as well, and I used to do voice classes here with him. He used to teach here in the Abbey upstairs in the rehearsal room, and um, I put down the fact that I never lost my voice in a show to Ray because he used to, he taught us the most scientific way. He brought in a, a model head and showed us how the 
the breath support of the voice and scientifically how sound travels and you don't have to push it. And um, he was an absolutely wonderful teacher and really, really supportive of young actors as well. And his party piece mm. to show you how to use the voice properly was to hold a lighted match in front of his mouth and sing at the top of his voice, this huge, big operatic sound, and the, the match wouldn't even flicker because the sound was resonating through the rib cage and through the whole, the side, through the, all of the available areas mm -hmm. in the body. And I, I try it, it's hard to do. <laughs> this big, big, big sound. But he said, that's how your voice needs to be. But I love those stories of him being supportive of younger mm -hmm. actors because it's something I really look for. Because I've luckily had many people taking me under their wing, particularly in this building over mm -hmm. the years. Um, but I love the fact that when people come to tell me stories about my granddad, they always, they always start the same, but then veer 50-50, which is, um, you know, I had the great pleasure of working with your granddad. He was uh, an absolute genius and the nicest man I've ever worked with. Or he was an absolute genius and the greatest bollocks of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the idea that, that it'll go either way, because I find both of them kind of equally entertaining. How do you turn on the light, Dad? Well, see, the thing is about electricity, right? No, no, just this, this new switch. How, how do we turn that on, Dad? No, what you have to remember, because this is extraordinary. See the metal that's made from? No, Dad, I just want to turn on the It's dark. I'm like, Can I turn on the light? Yeah, no. But, see, a long time ago, this guy had this fantastic... <laughs> Enlarge that up and you get it. Brilliant, but, but his mind worked on 17 different levels. Yeah, and it's, it's an important thing, though, as well, the thing of looking after younger generations. You see it with people like, like Phyllis Ryan and stuff as well. You see it with people yeah. like that. And it's to me, you see some actors, as they become more senior actors in a company, getting very jealous of attention or, or, um, mm. or very possessive. You kind of go, lads, look, it's not about that. It's about passing on the torch. And it's why I love the generational thing of it being passed down through the generations. Mm. And I'm massively keen to do that. I mean, look, I'm 32 years of age. I can't, there's not a huge amount of people coming up behind me. But, you know, when I do get the chance to work with younger people, and if they do ever come to me and look for advice, you go, well, of course, I'll, I'll, I'm no expert, but I'll give you what I have. Yeah. And I love seeing that from older actors. And that's why I love those stories about my granddad as well, of, of keeping it all passing on. Yes, you know? I know. And um, he also, um, another sort of bit of advice he gave was that no matter how brilliant you think your performance is on any given night, no matter how wonderful you think you are, there'll always be a percentage of people in the audience who will think you were, who will hate you. <laughs> um, just chemistry, you know, it's always going to be, uh, so it, 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 it that, that, you know, to be level-headed about things, not to be uh, getting carried away with yourself. Um, now, I think, if, have you any... Do you want... Well, he taught me one great lesson when I was 15. He was doing a, a sitcom in England called Me Mammy, oh, yeah. uh, written by Hugh Leonard, and it had Milo O'Shea and Anna Manahan and himself, and it was in Leeds. And I was over playing for Ireland in the under-16 boys' billers' championships in England. How did you qualify, Dad? <laughs> Nobody else in the country entered that year, OK? So I won a sole participant. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for that. I'll speak to you later. But anyway, I, I went up to see him, and we spent three days in the studio watching this being recorded, and it was fantastic. I got to see everybody and learn it in the studio, in the, in the control room. And when it finished, we went back to the dressing room. He hung up his costume because he taught us always to return your costumes to wardrobe. Never make wardrobe come and get your costumes. He said, simple, good manners must always happen and be professional. And it's something I've done throughout my entire career. And it's amazing when you need a costume in a hurry and hurry and you ring and say, any chance, they go, absolutely. And I've seen other people saying, could I get a, a guard a hat for Tuesday? Oh, no, you haven't requisitioned it four weeks in advance. But anyway, um, about 15 minutes later, we went back to the studio and it was completely empty. The last flat had gone out, and there was just the grey psych around the TV studio. And he said, no, that's gone. And I was, I was nearly in tears. Oh, the magic, he said, that's gone. That job is finished. He said, I'm now sacked. I knew, move on to the next thing. He said, there is no disgrace. This is how we live. We create these wonderful things, and then we do something else. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that wonderful? And I thought, yes, it is. And so we've had the freelance ideology in our family all our lives. And I love it. And I was at a dinner party once with a very obnoxious man who worked as a bank manager who said to me, it must have been very tough for you as a child growing up. I said, what do you mean? He said, had you always enough money for food? <laughs> And I just was reminded of the scene in Notting Hill. So I said to him, oh, absolutely, yes. And actually, when my dad died, his, the last show he did was a million for his fee. Was that all right? And there was complete silence. And I thought, you bleeper. Mm. So <laughs> that put him in his place anyway. Excellent. It's a, a good one to finish on. Well, um, I think that there's obviously people here who might have a, a couple of questions they'd like to ask themselves. Um, if you, yeah. Here's your opportunity. PJ Kelly, I have the pleasure of seeing your dad in many mentioned two, Paul McHale and Sir One which he was a great money spinner for the Abbey, because 
that time, people would go along to the notes boards outside and see whose name was on the notes board for the next production. It didn't really matter for many people whether it was the opening or closing of an envelope. The fact that Ray McAnally was there, they were going to be at that. And I had the pleasure of seeing him in The Country Boy, where he played the Indeed. American concern with the late and great Mary Keane. And the sparks that flew between them, even when they came on without opening one word, you knew that this was a couple and there were going to be fireworks between them. <laughs> they were coming back, she was being brought back to his mother and father, um, Hather, Hather O'Loan, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hather and the late Eileen Crow. Indeed. And uh, they were trying to impress, but behind the scenes, really, so that had never <laughs> happened in Irish life, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it, made, it was popular box office play, mm. but it ran and ran and ran, so much so that I think the average occurred not just one production on one occasion, but several productions on several occasions because the tills were, were just rolling and there were passing notes for the country boy. And I would regard that as good. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And of course, I, he also spoke very highly of Sean O'Reilly, who was um, Frank Reedy, who was the musical director in the Abbey here. We forget that from time to time, yes, you know. Yeah. That, so the, the, the tradition in this theatre and the attention to detail in this theatre and the great people who've tread the boards here, it's such a great training ground. And, you know, I, I have a picture at home of myself and Connor at the Queen's at the Panto, and I still have the big, big, huge comb that my dad had as on the, He was the giant... And he, he lit a cigarette with a, a saltpeter that was lit down here and it went all the way up. He's about nine foot tall. Up to, and I still have that huge big comb. But it, it is such a brilliant theatre, doing great work, and has created some fantastic actors, all of whom had the sense of company. Mm -hmm. And I just feel privileged, any of us who work in theatre, mm -hmm. in the arts, in performing, to have a gift and to be able to share it with people who want to watch it and listen to it and see it. So the pride of looking at what my mum and dad have done and looking at what um, Angus does in his work and Andrew and Billy, my wife, it, I love being that part of the family and indeed your own family. Let's not forget the lineage of your own family as well, Jane. It's, it's, a, special, it's a special thing working here. And I've been looking up, I'm 11 years working here now, on and off. Um, but every time you come in here, it's, it's a different beast. Mm. Uh, and it is, we, kinda, we talk about it in the, in the dressing rooms a lot, it is pulling on the green jersey and playing for Ireland. This is our national theatre. Um, and I've been lucky enough that I've, all, I've toured with the Abbey over to London and played you know, big theatres over there and whatever else. Uh, and they, you know, that, then it's just amplified up because you know, you're, you know, you're now playing away for your country. Um, <laughs> I work here regularly. The last time was 35 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a very special thing. The Abbey is, is unlike anything else. And every time I, I step backstage, uh, it's, uh, it's a really special feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's been a great, great pleasure and privilege to sit here and listen to the uh, fascinating reminiscences and uh, the, the stories and uh, to have you both here this evening. And um, I'd like to thank you all for coming and thanks to the McAnally's and their incredible, um, extraordinary family. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You'll find many more Abbey Theatre talks available to listen back to along with details of future talks in the series by visiting our website www.abbeytheatre.ie.